From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 117 of the Killing It podcast. This is Carl, joined today by Ryan and Dave. And uh, things are getting a little sunny out there. I'm actually, I'm, I'm enjoying it, although it might get a little warm. We're looking at 110, possibly, tomorrow. That's hot. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. For those, those who aren't familiar with the uh, geography of the western United States, Needles, California, the little town in Death Valley, uh, this morning they said they won't set a record, but they will set a June record at 122. And I was like, okay, I'll stay inside. I had yeah, well, to. when I hear 110, like we get that one day every three years in Sacramento, I always think of, oh, I don't want to live in Phoenix. But the truth is, we cool down at night. Phoenix does not. <laughs> well, it, that, that's the thing, right? I'm, I'm more and more convinced of the visionary wisdom of the snowbirding lifestyle. You know, li live somewhere in the northern half of the country in the summer where it's not going to be 110, but then relocate to somewhere in the southern half of, half of the country for the wintertime because I'm far too old to live in single-digit temperatures ever again. 80, 80 degrees, sunny, low humidity. Very nice today. <laughs> like, 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 don't get me wrong. There's going to be August where I'm going to be like 97% humidity and it hasn't rained. But, but you know, like this is the good. These are the good times. The May, May and June is the is the beauty times. <laughs> I remember visiting you in D.C. and we did the nighttime tour of the monuments and it rained, and it was a little bit on the warm side. Yes. Oh, well, well, that was, see, that was July. If you remember, that was more like July. Don't get me wrong, that July, it's, it's a little wet out there and humid and gross, but I'm enjoying the nice weather right now. <laughs> At least it'll wash away all the cicadas. So. Exactly. And, and they are they are starting to diminish. It is more quiet right now. It doesn't hurt that we had, like, you know, serious weather earlier in the week, which I believe wiped out a number of them, too. How do you do voiceovers? Like, how do you do audio with the cicadas, you have like uh, cicada-proof windows or something. Well, my windows are closed. Like I'm not. It's not like I'm going outside and recording these shows. <laughs> now, see where 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 I am located. We definitely have rain delays, like baseball games, because I have this lifetime warranty metal roof on the house, which is beautiful. It looks very nice. Zero maintenance. You don't have to touch it ever except when it really decides to rain and then it sounds deafening inside of my <laughs> office and uh, you, you must pause any live recording in that process. <laughs> All of us with our circumstances when we can't do a show. I know, I know. <laughs> well, let's All dive right. in. This week we're, we're brought to you by our friends at Gazinta. Did you know that the average MSP spends 10 hours manually inputting accounting data each week? That time is 120 prospect calls, a month's worth of the business of tech, or building an entire Lego Death Star. Gazinta Mobius can make your life easier through accounting automation. Automatic sync of invoices, expenses, and inventory from ConnectWise Manage into QuickBooks Online in just a single click of a button. 
With onboarding, direct support, and regular feature releases, Gazinta is a family-owned company dedicated to making software suck a little less each day. Visit them at gozinta.com. That's G-O-Z-Y-N-T-A dot com. So I'm going to start us off with this. It's a bit of a long read, and I'd encourage everyone to take the time with it, with a security researcher who digs into the truth about ransomware, that we aren't prepared, it's a battle with new rules, and it hasn't reached its peak yet. What I was really taking, you know, the, the, the piece I wanted to start this conversation is he makes a statement that really resonated for me as someone who talks a lot about strategies. And I talk a lot about the fact that, look, patching, two-factor authentication, zero-trust security architectures, like, they're the answer. And his counter-argument is the, that's just really hard. It's just really impossibly difficult. That if you think about the number of... Uh, systems out there and everything needing patching. That's just a, a complex uh, matrix, particularly if you get into an enterprise organization, but even a mid-market or small organization. His argument is, is zero trust. It's a great idea. Really hard to actually achieve it. Like it is just really difficult to fundamentally achieve it. And more importantly, we need more support because the business model on the other side is becoming so good that that is just such a machine that is bigger than commercial interests can take on. That it's just such a money making scheme that we are outgunned. And I wanted to sort of throw this for a discussion of like, how much do we have to rethink this whole strategy to get anywhere? Well, I will say, you know, this is one of my pet peeves for many years now. I think there's sort of three levels of thinking about securing these systems. The first is don't leave your keys in the car, right? <laughs> you, you have to patch and fix and update. And uh, people always give me pushback. You can't be safe. You can't be safe. I'm like, oh, okay, no, I, I can't be 100%. But give me the first 95. That's low fruit. That's that's easy to do. And you can automate with a button. Um, so that's the first level. The second level is, I think, with concerted effort and a little bit of money, it is possible to secure and monitor and back up small businesses so that they can be recovered in a reasonable amount of time. Third level is, sorry to say, you can't do this at an enterprise level. If you have a thousand servers in one organization, at least one of them is not monitored, not patched, not fixed, not updated. Nobody remembers why it exists, right? And so it, it, in that environment, it is impossible. And when you add all the devices, which is roughly 10 to 100 times the number of servers, uh, yeah, there's no way. So, you know, there's there's levels. Luckily, most of our audience is in that small business space where I think enough time, energy, and money can get you uh, great results, uh, particularly if you have an air-gapped backup. I mean, that's the ultimate uh, way to make sure you can get back in business. See, and, and that's the thing, right? There are fundamental techniques that will give you a a last resort option for recovery. And, and hopefully everybody is at least thinking about that because we know for a fact that all of our clients are not deploying that technology. But I look at this as a, it's, it's the byproduct of three essential trends in our industry, right? Number one, we have much more systematic 
exposure to connectivity, right? And what I mean by that is, uh, uh, forgive me, Dave, um, digital transformation has been largely successful, right? We've put more critical business systems online than ever before, which dramatically increases that internal weight of all of the servers, right? Where we used to be able to run one or two or 10 servers in an organization, now everything is connected and digital and therefore there's a whole lot more going on. The second trend is the work from anywhere and remote organization capability. Even before the pandemic, when we're getting geographical distance elimination, we can just work with anyone anywhere because we're all online. And then the third is this idea of the IoT phenomenon where we have not just computers and smartphones and a few other devices, but then tens of thousands of connected smart sensor devices. I think the essential conclusion here is accurate. You cannot possibly individually monitor and manage every single one of those touch points. So I think we need a complete rethink of this from an architectural point of view. I would have thought that, you know, an industry dedicated to security stuff like firewalls, like edge or perimeter protection, right? Just put a great big wall around everything and we're all fine. Except as you'll read in this article, uh, those are some of the most frequent culprits for being easy to target and attack. And those are, you know, we trust them, it's a firewall and it's easily breached. And therefore what you thought was safe is no longer safe. I think this requires a fundamental rethink of how we even conceive of systematic data protection. Yeah. So I, I, what was interesting to me is, is, is that, you know, like, and I'm, I'm always, I'm always sitting here, like trying to nasal gaze a lot and think about like, what can I do different? Is there an idea I haven't thought of? Is there some other way of approaching it? And I, I know I keep advocating for like, oh, we've got to take security differently. I think that two statements can actually be true at the same time. I think it can be a true statement that this researcher is, is, and, and security expert has put out to say essentially the we are chasing an impossible goal and thus we must do something different. I think that it can be true while simultaneously saying we are so bad at the basics that as as like a society that that is we should be working on the basics while also thinking about doing things differently. Microsoft's CISO just did an interview, and I, I covered it on Business of Tech, talking about the fact that Microsoft has achieved a level of 99.9% uh, removal of passwords within their environment, like Microsoft themselves. Nice. They've, in fact, removed the password rotation policies from their own corporate networks because they are now unnecessary. <laughs> because... <laughs> They don't need to do that because multi-factor authentication, right. biometrics, like they've layered on other stuff and done that well. And what was interesting to me was the statement he made was uh, that for them, the difference became saying, going from saying, we're going to put multi-factor authentication everywhere to telling their users, we're going to eliminate passwords. And that the change in the language created a culture shift to thinking about 
wow, we're getting rid of passwords. We all hate passwords. They <laughs> suck. Like, and, and it created this environment where they said, well, we want to move to tokens and uh, physical key and multi-factor authentications and biometrics because we don't have to deal with passwords anymore. And it changed the way of the, the thinking. So I, I think it's interesting to re-examine this stuff and say, we should be re-examining it. We are doing it wrong. But that doesn't mean to necessarily throw out the basics. We just have to figure out a different way of approaching it. Well, that's why, you know, I said, don't leave the keys in the car, right? I, I literally hear ads on the radio telling people, hey, you know, it's nice to have, to get into a cool car, but, you know, cooling off your car by turning it on remotely and then leaving your keys in it is a really bad idea. And I think, okay, like that message is 50 years old. Like, why is there still an ad on the radio? Well, for the same reason that human beings still click on everything that shows up in their email, right? Um, I would add one little element to all of this, which is that a lot of the vendors, and, and you know, I don't want to badmouth any of our advertisers, but a lot of the vendors are not motivated to fix these problems. Think about if you sell firewalls, you want people back in their office so they're all behind one firewall that you sold them, right? If you if you think that the, you're going to ignore the distributed network, well, then you want to sell a, a backup solution that touches every device it can see, right? And so on and on, a lot of the vendors, like it or not, are stuck trying to make money on technology that will soon become obsolete. And they have yes. to either change their business model, change their product line, or change the way that they get the word out. Um, well, I, look, I've gone on, I've gone on an editorial rant before on, on my show about the, uh, about the, the lack of an incentive alignment around vendors. I, the reason I think this is important to talk about is, is I think there's some smart vendor out there who's going to learn and say, wait a second, if I do change this, there's a disruption that I can make in this marketplace and make more money. And I, I would, I'm throwing the idea out there for vendors as well, saying like, this is your chance to rethink this because somebody is going to, to do this. Because by the way, this current situation is untenable. And so the first group that are making changes are going to be the winners. Well, and, and see, to do exactly that thing, Dave, I think that to borrow an old business school concept, disruptive innovation is ripe for this space. If all we're doing is incrementally improving the tools that are already not good enough and too frequent and too difficult to administer, if all we're doing is making each of those just a little bit better, well, then the, the network admins task list is going to go from one to a thousand to a million, and that's not sustainable. So what we have to do is to just basically rethink what is a different way. I tend to be a big believer in biometric things that attach to a token or a 2FA, right? I think from everything I'm reading, there's a lot to be learned and done over there. But of course, we've seen horror stories in Hollywood films about how those things can be spoofed and defeated. I hope that there's very, very smart people working on that because I think that's a different way that could make a difference. In lieu of something that is completely different and disruptive, I think that the you know uh, the the article I saw most recently on this topic was if you have a child in junior high or high school and you're wondering well, what should they be when they grow up well if you're if you're wanting a guaranteed career 
for them in the next 10 years? Cybersecurity administrator <laughs> who can actually work from anywhere and they're gonna have guaranteed employment. Yes, so the word of the day is not plastics, it's cybersecurity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Shocking. Is anyone surprised by that one? <laughs> excellent, excellent Hollywood reference, Carl. What is the next one? <laughs> All right. So for our second topic here, we're going to go from the theory of cybersecurity into the practical application. The article that we're linking to is a representation of kind of the phenomenon post-pandemic of will we continue to work remote? Will we go back to the office or will there be a hybrid? I know you guys have had this conversation a thousand times, but there's actual data out there right now that I think is interesting. According to the research highlighted in this article, when you ask workers, employees, what they would like to do, 97% of them say they would like to continue working remotely at least part of the time. But the, 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 the immovable object that is working against that unstoppable force is the attitude of management. And what we're highlighting here is how managers are going to start using cybersecurity as a lever to pull their teams back into the office because, you know, we're all concerned about cybersecurity and out there in your house, it's very unsecure. So please come back to the office full time and we will have much better cybersecurity. Uh, based on the substance of our previous topic, guys, do we actually have better cybersecurity in the office? Well, <laughs> bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, bless you, Dave. So, excuse I, me, know, excuse me. Something caught in my throat. Uh, you, know, I, you know, one of the things I always remind people of when we go through some big, big thing that that you know changes a lot of stuff all at once. You have to remember, good stuff happened as well. You know, in the last recession in two thousand eight, nine, ten. Uh, we went basically from remote to cloud services while nobody was looking. And in the in this pandemic, in this shutdown and sending everybody home and now bringing them back in, we basically took a big step up in security on a, on a wide scale basis and, and on a distributed basis. I don't know that there's a lot of new technology that happened, but the use of technology has demonstrated that we can be secure in both of those environments. And so if one side effect is there's a nice dollop of humanity that says, you know, we'd all like to have a day or two working at home where we can be a little more relaxed to get some chores done, you know, uh, maybe not work eight to five, but, but work, you know, nine to six on and off or seven or, you know, whatever, take two hours out in the afternoon to get some stuff done on the car. Everybody would love that environment, but we got to make sure that we continue to have our eyes on the security piece that we were just discussing. Well, look, I mean, I, my, my reaction on this is the same that always is. Like, there's not one single answer to this, but lots of people that, that are used to a particular way are going to use whatever particular excuse they can come up with to try and make it like it was. We've been through a disruptive event. event. We have learned a whole bunch. And I think the dynamics of workers has shifted dramatically, way more than management recognizes based on the, like you can see, 
you're seeing it in the uh, discussions of the, you know, the great resignation that 25 to 40 percent of people are thinking about quitting their jobs. Why? They're reevaluating what's important to them and what their priorities are and what they want from life and how that will be implemented in their lives. Does that mean some work from home? Does that want flexibility? Do they want more family time? All of those discussions, all the things people are wrestling with coming out of this particular series of events is leading them to two new pieces. And all management is going, that is thinking, well, I'm going to put things back and they're going to want it the way that it was. Uh, no, like you and and my again, my my statements on these are always sort of simple in in that I think people that try that embrace the flexibility are the ones that are going to do very, very well. The ones that are just rigid and want it to be all the way that it was are the ones that are not going to do very well. And it's just a matter of how long it takes for that to fall, fall out. Well, and, and that's the thing, right? The uh, the language of management for an entire generation has been control and the ability to control what your people are doing for history has been based on, I have physical proximity and line of sight to those humans and I can see whether or not they are doing their jobs uh, in an industrial sense. I understand some of that from a management point of view, from a knowledge working perspective, I do not understand most of that, but we have seen that method of management become more and more outdated and then we snapped into a an overnight working from everywhere philosophy and companies were still productive and organizations still achieved their goals and revenue in, in some segments actually increased during the pandemic instead of decreasing. And yet you know that there are managers in those organizations who just ain't okay. If they can't look at their people and see what they are doing, I think, Dave, you're exactly on this. It's a there. There's there's an evolution in what people's expectations are that needs to be embraced, and it can be not only a cultural improvement, but but a competitive advantage, right? Think think about it. If in the Great Resignation, forty percent of my people are thinking I'm going to quit, and then you read the other headline that says there's a labor shortage, you can't find enough humans to do anything, well everything in life is a competition because it doesn't mean nobody can hire employees it just means the ones who have really unfortunate rigid outdated management approaches they're going to struggle where if you embrace that philosophy of hybrid working the folks will beat a path to your door because they prefer that lifestyle right and I, you know to dave's point about you know you can't have the same answer for everybody we do have to make a distinction between the knowledge workers and people who are on an assembly line or, you know, there's, there are jobs where human beings have to show up uh, until we can, you know, get the robots in there. <clears throat> but in the right. meantime, we do need human beings and you still need a management style that allows them to be treated well. Um, but we, so we can't apply the rules to, of knowledge workers to everybody. But I, I do think that Right now, it's a seller's market. And so if you're selling your labor and you don't want to work in a place that treats you like crap, this is your lucky day. <laughs> right. right. This is your chance. You can move to somewhere else because you you're in the work somewhere else. Exactly. And, and specifically within the context of this article, when we talk about cybersecurity and the fortress is safer than the outpost. I don't think that that's necessarily true. And to Carl's point earlier, when you have a fortress, it includes thousands of servers 
and it might actually be less secure, more easily and frequently targeted by the bad guys out there in the world. I kind of feel like the old assumption of, well, the office is the most secure place to do your job. Right. And we should move to the next topic, but I did want to say one last thing on that, which is, you know, if you think about the remote worker as the new thing, it's much easier to secure a new thing than an old thing. Because you know where all the parts are, you know what's allowed, what's not, how many things should be connected, how many IP addresses you get, da 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 da. You can define that and make it more secure than you're ever going to be able to secure something that's been sitting around growing unmanaged for 40, 50 years. Alrighty, oddly enough, our final topic, which we, we kind of morphed into somewhat, is about workplace and having a nice place to work. Apparently, it turns out, Amazon is not that place. <laughs> it is at, not least that on place. The, at least on their shipment floors, it seems. <laughs> uh, so they are having massive turnover. So we're going to link to uh, an article um, that basically it uses the words that Amazon is burning through employees. They are literally wearing people out. And, uh, you know, I've seen an article actually just last week about how uh, they they have these policies that basically you're required to fire a certain number of people per year. And so, you know, it, it it's literally like creating the worst case environment. Um, it, one of the notes here, many of the 350,000 workers Amazon hired from July to October stayed with the company days or weeks instead of long term. Now. Speaking I, of I think you're doing bit. something wrong, Amazon. <laughs> just, just something wrong. Like this, just, like just observe that. I mean, if if you're running this, I mean, I, I love it when when management is worried about running out of people. Right. That's their concern. Perhaps there's something wrong. It's as if we've hired every person in the United States once. Now, right. Who are we getting hired? right. Now what? Now what? We've tried them all. Like. Yeah, perhaps the pe people are not the problem. Like, just just let me frame that as an idea for a quick moment. Perhaps the people aren't the problem. <laughs> See, well, and one of the things that I always consider, Carl, where you're going is there's there there's cost to everything we do in business, right? You know, there's operating expense, there's marketing expense, there's capital and uh, expense and and investment in plant and equipment, but human resources and specifically the process of finding, hiring, onboarding, and managing new employees, that ain't cheap. And, and I, can't, I can't imagine just how out of whack in their expense chart of accounts the human resources budget must be, right? You know, every organization allocates a certain amount of percentage to the cost of sales and a certain amount to the cost of SG&A and all the operating and back office things. And then there's that HR line. And most of us think, I don't know, a few percent, probably fine. People like working here. <laughs> There's, that might be the highest line item in their operation. Well, you it's Let me throw out an idea. This is where it gets interesting. Amazon has been very good at pivoting of making something that is an expense into a revenue line for them. Amazon Web Services being like the ultimate expression of that, where right. you know, where, where it's something that it was an expense, they figured out a way to make a product. Ryan, your statement leads me to go like, I wonder what their HR offering will end up being. First <laughs> off, I might be frightened of it. But if they but if they take that approach and figure out a way to make that into a revenue center for them somehow, 
it's at least an intriguing idea to try and figure out what that is. Well, and we've seen stories just, you know, the last six months of Amazon hiring 100,000 people at a time. Well, if they're turning them over that fast, that's that's not a story of a good, successful company that's growing. It's the story of a company that is going in the wrong direction very fast. And I have worked, and I think most people, most people who, who are consultants at some point in their life left a horrible, horrible job where the turnover was very high. And it is literally, it's one of the easiest indicators of the health of a culture is turnover. And, yes. you know, and so... I think this is bad, bad news for Amazon investors. And I have to say, when sometimes we think about these companies being so big, how could they ever fall? How could they ever stumble? This might be it for Amazon. This might be the thing that if they don't get it under control, that they will stumble and fall. And they will fall very hard because if you take all of their hundreds of thousands of employees and suddenly they each cost an extra $10, the cost of everything on Amazon goes up. You, you know, in a in a related but slightly humorous, although I'm sure not for the direct participants, note on this. Yesterday, I was reading an article about how in the year 2020, the incidence of dog bite incidents in the United States for delivery personnel was at not only at a record height, but more than double the previous high year. And one can understand, right? There, everybody worked from home. Everything was delivered by a delivery human from your food to your Amazon package, to your postal um, parcels, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, all, all the dogs were still there and the ones that were gonna bite did. And uh, they just had many more opportunities to do this. There's, this is Carl, I think you're onto something. This might be an Achilles heel for an organization that has unlimited market opportunity, but has a physical attachment to human beings to do the work that they do. AWS could scale until the end of days as long as there's another warehouse to stack up another 10,000 stripped down server chassis. Uh, but if you're getting into the package delivery business until we get to the burrito via a drone at my house this is still a human who's doing all that stuff and, and i chuckle whenever i see amazon is the best corporate citizen in your community because they'll move in and hire fifty thousand people that's not hiring a net new fifty thousand people that's rehiring the same people they've already churned through so it's uh this may very well be a growth limiter uh, watch you've, for sure. <laughs> you've done management consulting ryan and you know when you see a turnover rate of 150 percent how big is that red flag Oh, see, that's the thing, right? I That's one of the very first things I look at when I look at an organization, to your point. A turnover rate of zero is usually not an indication of perfect health. It, it might be an indication right. of stagnation. But anything that approaches 20% is egregious. It's out of control. Uh, Amazon's is 150 I mean, uh, we're not just blinking red light here. We're we're like, no, the castle is actually on fire and we've run out of buckets. <laughs> you do expect some of that to be natural, right? And you want people progressing in their careers and, and moving up or potentially out, right? But 150%, not so good. Well, and, and those people don't just leave Amazon. 
they leave and tell bad stories for the rest of their lives. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That one time I had that one job and then nobody wants to accept that. New so, position. so when they're finished hiring every single person in America once, there'll be a lot of bad stories. <laughs> All righty. Well, sadly, that will do it for this episode of the Killing It, Killing it Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.